The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You guys doing good? Hope you've had a great week. Hey, there's so many exciting things going on here at Story City. I am so pumped for our women's ministry to get off the ground. We've got some ladies that just raised their hand and said, hey, we want to be a part of investing into the lives of uh, women at our church. And so we're pumped uh, for the beginning of that. Uh, Just a lot of great things. Next week, we're going to introduce you to a brand new staff member here at Story City. A lot of good things going on. And uh, I'm grateful that you're here today. If you happen to bring a Bible with you today, Go ahead and open it up to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. We've been in this series called This Absurd Life. We've taken this word that we see 39 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the Hebrew word is hevel, and some translators translate it as meaningless. They translate it as vapor. And one translator said um, all of the words combined can't even communicate what it actually means. And so he translated it absurd. And we've taken that, and uh, we've tried to look at uh, how Solomon views all of life. So we've made our way through six chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you happen to have missed the first six chapters of our series, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast of some of those. And Solomon has postured to us the absurdity of all of life from his perspective, which he's called under the sun. In other words, he's not included the perspective of God over the sun. Just from where he stood, he said, all of life seems absurd. He didn't discriminate. He said, my work seems absurd. Um, All the money that I've accumulated seems absurd. My religious pursuit seems absurd. My academic pursuit of knowledge seems absurd. And so he's made this statement about life. And now in chapter seven, he's going to make the turn. He's going to turn the corner and he's going to try to make sense of how to live in light of the fact that all of life seems absurd. And so we get to chapter seven. We're going to make our way through 14 verses here this morning. And the theme, the context that Solomon's going to speak to this morning are the ideas of prosperity and diversity, adversity, prosperity and adversity. All of us go through times of prosperity. All of us go through times of adversity. I, uh, after the first service, I heard from quite a few who were going through a difficult time in life right now. They're going through adversity. And the reason why we know that he's going to posture this idea of, uh, of adversity and prosperity is because chapter 14, I mean, a cha- a verse 14 tells us, Solomon says, when times are good, be happy. Then he goes on to say, when times are bad, remember, consider that God has established both of them. And so this idea of prosperity and adversity is going to saturate these 14 verses. And then what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to enter into these times of prosperity and adversity and tell us there are really two ways to respond. There's the foolish way to respond, and then there is the wise way to respond. So in the first 10 verses here in chapter 7, Solomon's going to use the word better eight times. He's going to use the word heart five times. It's as if Solomon's going to say... When you're experiencing prosperity, when you're experiencing adversity, there is a better way for your heart to respond and experience these times. So let me pray for us. We're going to jump right into the scriptures this morning. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, that's living and active, sharpening two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow. 
and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, thank you for the word that we are about to hear this morning. God, in your scripture, Jesus, I pray that the spirit of the living God would give us ears to hear. God, I also pray that you would eliminate distractions this morning in this moment who's in front of us, behind us, to the left of us, and the right of us. And God, focus us by the spirit of the living God to hear from you. Because God, this moment's never happened before and will never happen again. So God, do what you wish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Solomon's going to journey into this idea of the wise way and the foolish way to respond to prosperity and adversity. Verse 1 says this, and a good name is better than fine Perfume. I love the smell of perfume, by the way. I love the smell of my wife's perfume. When I was single, I used to wear more cologne than I do today. I don't find the need to have to wear it as much anymore. But I love a good smell of cologne and perfume. Now listen to what Solomon is about to say here. A good name is better than fine perfume. Now listen to the second half of this verse. This is what he says. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. You're like, what? Wait a minute. How did you go from perfume to dying and being born? And so, and so Solomon is going to compare this idea of reputation here in, in, in verse 1. He's going to compare the idea of a reputation with the inviting smell of perfume. It's as if Solomon is saying, a good reputation goes before us as the aroma of our character. And Solomon is going to posture to us. He's going to set us on this journey here to talk about the wise way and the foolish way of living. And it's as if he's going to say right up front that wisdom today makes the potential for a better reputation Tomorrow. Now, here's what I want you to do. Um, he says the day of birth is better than the day of, I mean, the day of death is better than the day of birth. So he's going to repeat this theme over and over here in these 14 verses. He's going to talk about the present. He's going to talk about the future. And he's going to talk about the past. And he's going to come back to it multiple times here in this passage. So I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come to it. It's going to be an important uh, principle for us here this morning. Verse 2, Solomon says this. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration, verse 3, is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. You see heart. He's already mentioned it multiple times. Again in verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And then he says, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And so Solomon is going to posture this before us this morning, that it's wise to consider the brevity of life. Look, when I was 25 years old, some of you guys are close to 25. When I was 25, it was hard for me to consider death, right? Because I was focused on how am I going to live today? What am I going to do to make this very next season of life the best it could possibly be? When I was young, it was hard to consider the end of life. But listen to what Solomon says. Death is the destiny of every human alive. The death rate, the mortality rate is 100%. It's going to happen to every single one of us. And and Solomon says we can learn a lot about life by not just attending parties, but also by attending funerals. Just the nature of ministry is that you participate in funerals frequently. And I've participated in funerals often where people had never been to a funeral in their life, but they had been to a lot of weddings. Death is sobering. Funerals are sobering. And Solomon says death may have the possibility of teaching you more about reality than a party. 
Um, I, I, I sort of mentioned this last week, um, but a couple of weeks ago, I was on a flight from Chicago to Los Angeles. It was a very early morning flight. And uh, so because it was so early, I was, I was trying to get some sleep. And, <clears throat> and so um, I had my headphones on and I looked up and I happened to notice that every flight attendant on the plane um, was congregated in the row, in the row beside me. So I take my headphones off and I look around and I look back behind me, two rows behind me, there's a guy who's having a medical condition. And so the flight attendants come across the, uh, they come over the intercom and they say, if there's a doctor on the plane, we need you uh, in the back of the plane. And so this lady comes sprinting down, uh, sprinting up the, I was in the back, she comes sprinting up the aisle. She's got UCLA medicine on her, on her jacket. And she gets to two rows behind me and there's this guy that's obviously having a difficult time. She lays him down in the row of three and she gets on top of him and she starts to do chest compressions. They'd already broken out the AED machine at this point. They put it on his chest to try to shock him. And then all of a sudden she stands up and sort of does her hands like this. And every flight attendant dispersed. In mid-flight from Chicago to L.A., this guy died. And I've told that story several times to several people over the last couple weeks. And every one of their responses has been the exact same. Every one of them has said, was it an old guy? Must have been an old guy. He had an old guy who had a heart attack, right? And I said, no, no, no. This guy, I watched him get on the plane. There's no way this guy was older than 30. He had to, 30 max. And, and their response is always the same. It's shock. Like you can see, you, I could see the look on their face. Shock. Death is a shock to our system. Why? Because it causes us to reflect on our own lives, right? How does it cause us to reflect? Solomon uses this idea of the heart here. If you understand the heart biblically, Biblically, the heart is the place, it's the seat of emotion, it's the seat of reflection, it's the seat of of moral action and decision making. And so Solomon says, it's good for the heart to reflect on death. Paul sort of says the same thing in the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, over in the New Testament. And this is what he says. He's in a prison, and he's writing, and he's considering the future, and he's considering life beyond the grave, and he says, living means living for Christ. But then he makes this strange statement. Yet dying is even better. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, gives us the same idea. Teach us to number our days, that we may have a heart of wisdom. There's this thing about sorrow and mourning that sobers us to reality. And so think about all the things that Solomon at this point, up till chapter seven, six entire chapters. Think about all the things that Solomon says are absurd. The the accumulation of money and possessions, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of academic knowledge as the way of life, making your job the center of your life. Think about all the things that he has said. These are absurd. Now put a frame around all of those things with this idea of death. And Solomon says, everything we have achieved at some point in the future is eventually going to go away. Stop and think about that for just a moment. If you're young, if you're old, just stop just for a moment to think about it. Biblically, for the Christian, the end is better than the beginning. We can confidently say as we read the Bible, we can say with a straight face to people that the best is yet to come. That's a true statement according to Scripture. 
especially for those who know Jesus and they walk in wisdom. Because look what verse 4 says. Verse 4, Solomon says, the wise person mourns when adversity strikes. The wise person mourns when adversity strikes, but then he contrasts it with this response of being a fool. But the fool looks for a party. That's essentially what he says. Adversity hits, the wise person mourns. He's sobered to the reality of life. Adversity hits for the fool. What does he do? He looks for a party. Several years ago, I was a chaplain for a football team in Atlanta, and it just so happened... um, Two players' parents died on the same day several years ago. Both of them didn't attend church. They uh, had never even been to a funeral before. And so they came to me and said, Pastor Matt, can you help us facilitate this funeral? Of course, I would be honored to help you walk through this time of mourning and grief and hope and joy. And so uh, we're doing one particular funeral for one of the parents. It was a guy who was extremely talented, um, and his dad passed away suddenly. And so we're in this auditorium, this funeral home chapel and the football team is there and some family and friends are there. And so I, I get up to do what's called, sort of known as the eulogy in a funeral sermon. So it's, it's the sermon for the funeral. It's intended to give people hope and to be able to look to the future and say, even in a time of grief, there can be hope and there can be joy. And the way you do that is to point people to Jesus. And so as I'm pointing people to Jesus in a time of grief, saying there's hope and there can be joy in this moment. The the sibling, the brother, the older brother of one of those players whose dad is now in the casket and we're preaching over him. The older brother stands up from where he's seated right in front of me and he walks back up the aisle in front of everybody and he walks out the back door. And I had this brief moment when you're standing up and preaching and somebody leaves. If you can see them, you're like, that's weird. Why would he, that's his dad and this is his funeral. Somebody told me afterwards that he got up, went to the outside of of the funeral home to smoke a joint. And I thought about this idea. It reminded me as I'm preparing this week about how fools and how wise people respond in the time of mourning. When adversity comes, when grief comes, when trials and difficulty come, Solomon says, the wise person mourns, but the foolish people, they drink too much. They do stupid things. They laugh, they dance, they drink through their problems. And Solomon says, but the wise embrace them. They go through them, knowing that on the other side of the problem, on the other side of the adversity, God is there and joy is there. Now, verse 5, Solomon says, It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. Solomon says, this too, here's the word again, hevel, that we see 39 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's translated meaningless in the New International Version. We're translating the word absurd for our purposes for this series. Solomon says, this too is absurd. So he compares this pursuit of pleasure. And fools pursue pleasure in a time of adversity to these crackling, to these, 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 these branches, these, these limbs, these, these things crackling under the pot of a fire. And he says, it's absurd. It's as if Solomon's saying that we should live wisely in light of life's adversity rather than as if life is just one continual party. 
Solomon frames adversity and prosperity with this sort of window frame to look through it. And that window frame is death because it's a sobering reality. Now look what verse 7 says. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Adversity and prosperity offer all sorts of temptations when they show up in our life. And the temptations are such that they want to to, to, to woo us, to woo us to abandon a wise, lifestyle, a, a wise lifestyle and to live like a fool. And so Solomon mentions the heart here again in verse 7. The heart, the seat of affection, the seat of reflection, the seat of where moral decision-making is made. It's the place from which all of life flows. And it's if Solomon says the heart should consider in times of temptation to not poison your soul for a few bucks because it's never a good return. It's never a good investment in the economy of God. Solomon says that those temptations to prosperity can corrupt even the heart of a wise man, so much so that he gives in to bribery. Now put this into context again about everything that Solomon has taught us. And Solomon says he's looking at life from under the sun, In fact, there's two perspectives on who wrote the book of of Ecclesiastes. Both perspectives involve Solomon. One perspective involves just Solomon. The second involves Solomon and an editor who comes in behind him who has heard the words that Solomon has said because the first six chapters sound drastically different from the last five chapters. And so put everything that he said in the first six chapters in perspective. If you have a perspective on life under the sun that doesn't involve God, that he's absent from the process, you don't consider him in your work, you don't consider him in your finances, you don't consider him in your journey of pursuing knowledge and accumulating stuff. The reality is when God is absent and he rarely influences those things in your life, then it becomes easy for our hearts to become corrupted by temptation. And so... Those bribes look like fudging on billable hours. Those bribes look like stealing from our employers, including the time we serve. Those bribes look like an easy excuse for why we take what's not ours or take more than what we've got coming and we deal with things in such a way that begin to corrupt the heart. Now, I I could not help as I'm reading this verse in preparation for this morning to think about a dear friend of mine and several others in the room who was a pastor in Southern California for years, and he's open about his story. Got to the point where he thought, you know what? The church is not paying me what I'm owed, and so he took matters into his own hands. He embezzled money, and it found him in jail. Solomon says, temptation during adversity can corrupt even a wise man. It can turn a wise person into a fool. This is if Solomon wants to say to take notice of the things that influence you, that can change you in the moment. <clears throat> now, verse 8. Verse 8 is sort of the crux of this, of this uh, passage this morning. So I want you to lean in and, and pay attention. Verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Remember, here's this idea again. The future and the past... The end and the beginning, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now listen to me. Before you ever become a husband 
or a wife, it's easy to think, you know what, I'm going to be the best husband on planet universe, right? And then you become a husband, you're like, ooh, this is not as easy as I thought it was going to be, right? When I was a youth pastor, before I had kids, I would look at parents, and I'm like, really, it's not this hard, it's not this complicated, wake up, a couple quick conversations, do a couple things, like it's not that hard. Then I had kids, and I'm like, wow, this is a little harder than I thought it was going to be, right? Everybody thinks, I was a great actor in Louisiana, I'm going to move to LA, and it's going to be easy to be a great actor. And then you get here, and you're like, there's a thousand people that are just like me. Like, it's easy to think the future is going to be easier than it really is. And Solomon says, from the time there is a beginning in your life to the time there is an end, there's going to be a middle. And in the middle, there's going to be prosperity, and there's going to be adversity. And he wants to challenge us here in how we respond to that adversity. I love what the great theologian Mike Tyson once said. He said, everybody has a plan. Remember what he said? Until you get punched in the mouth. At some point from the beginning to the end, adversity is going to hit. Somewhere along the journey, there's going to be adversity. Now listen to how Solomon says we should deal with it. And patience is better than pride. He goes on in verse nine. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. As you walk through a season of diversity, whatever that may be, your health is failing. You've lost a job. Job's not come through like you thought it was going to promise. The finances are not what you thought they would be in a city, and they can't sustain you. Whatever your season of diversity may be, you made a bad investment. You've sat in L.A. traffic, and you're like, Lord, why, Lord? (laughs) At some point when adversity strikes, Solomon says, you may be tempted to become impatient. Verse 8. Solomon says, you may be provoked to anger. Verse 9. Solomon says, you may be tempted to complain about the circumstances and look for the good old days. Verse 10. Solomon brings us back to this idea, the beginning and the end, the future and the past, what's in front of us and what's behind us. Have you ever tried to drive a car looking backwards? Have you ever tried to do that? I feel like I've ridden with some people that are constantly looking backwards because they're terrible drivers, but have you ever tried this? Like there's a principle. You understand this principle if you're of driving age. You understand there's a basic principle of moving forward and looking forward, right? You understand that, right? If you want to go forward, what do you do? You look forward, right? If you want to go backwards, what do you do? You look backwards. Listen, it's the same. The same is true spiritually, particularly in adversity. And here is the great principle that Solomon is driving us to in times of adversity. If you have something to write it down, take notes. Solomon is saying, you can't move forward looking backward. 
You can't move forward looking backward. You can't move forward in your walk with the Lord when you're looking backward. Scripture reminds us of this. There's a man by the name of Lot. God says you got to leave this godless culture. And when you leave, don't look back. When they're leaving Lot's wife, she turns and she looks towards the godless culture that she's having a difficult time leaving. And she dies. We see it in Scripture when God brings the people of God out of Egypt. They're in bondage. They're in oppression. And God says, I'm taking you here and we're going to move forward to the place that I promised you. And while they're moving forward, we have conversations. We have an inside view and perspective on these conversations. But God, there's no water like it used to be. God, there's no food like we used to experience. God, we're standing on the shore of the Red Sea and our worst nightmare is coming behind us. And then in Exodus 14, the people of God had the audacity to say, for it would be be better. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt than to move forward with where you're taking us. And then we see Jesus in the New Testament. And he says, Jesus says, life with God is like, it's like plowing a field. You can't plow a straight line if you're constantly looking over your shoulder. And so what does Solomon say? In times of adversity, verse 8, patience is better than impatience. Why? Because patient, patience is open to the future. Patience looks forward. Impatience looks back to the time that was lost. Solomon says, don't be angry. Why? Because it keeps you trapped in the past and prevents you from moving forward in joy in the future. Fools let anger take up residence in their heart. Impatience, anger, complaining causes us to look back at the past and to be closed off to the future. How often do we look back during adversity? How often do you look back during adversity in a tough season of work? We look back to the good old days when, when we had a better job or we lived at home and didn't have a job or we were in college and weren't even thinking about a job. How often do we look back in our times of adversity, a tough season of parenting? We look back to the season when we had no kids in time in a tough season of change. We look back to the past and we're like, I just wish it was like it was during the good old days. The problem, the problem biblically as we, as we browse from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, 21, is that in Genesis 3, from the time sin entered into the world and broke everything, from that time, everything in the past has experienced pain and struggle. And so there have been days that are filled with all of these memories of pain and struggle. But what's ahead of us? What's ahead of us is God's plan for the good days, particularly for the Christian life after death. We could genuinely say, the best is yet to come. Listen to me. When we look back, we fail to live fully in the present. In your time of adversity, when, when you look back, it creates this barrier for living present fully. I've enjoyed the book of Ecclesiastes because God's used it to speak to my heart. And it's my prayer philosophically is as I prepare, I want God to speak to me before I attempt to ask him to speak through me to you. 
And this is a challenging week. This is a challenging week. Because sometimes we look at somebody else's prosperity and good times, we're like, man, it must be good. And challenges, we somebody's prosperity is oftentimes intermingled and mixed with extreme adversity. And people look into the process of planning a church here in LA. I was in a meeting this week with an organization that said, whatever your question is, the answer is yes. We're going to help you however you need it. I have a meeting this week with a church on Wednesday in our city that's saying, we want you to help us come restart and re-energize our church. People look from the outside like, man, this must be a prosperous season. A church is growing. Things are going good. But can I say to you, this was a hard week for me because, because challenge in this season has been to look backwards and not be present fully. It's not just for myself. It's for both Tyler and I. Been here for three and a half years and God has been so good and it's been so, so many seasons of prosperity. But if you rolled the curtain back, if you rolled the curtain back, there's, there's just been adversity. Why do I say that to you? I say that to you this morning to say we all walk through these seasons. We all walk through these seasons. As I'm teaching this morning, I, I'm wrestling with these same ideas because I've got one hand on the wheel and another hand over the seat and I'm looking back, God, God, why can't it be like the good old days? Solomon moves on in verse 11 and he says, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as a money is also a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. And Solomon sort of puts this idea before us that knowledge and wisdom are, are two sort of different things. Knowledge will tell you the truth about a situation, but wisdom tells you what to do with that truth. And Solomon says, when you have wisdom, it doesn't guarantee, it doesn't guarantee, it doesn't protect you from hardship in your life, but what it does do is it promises and guarantees safe harbor and safe passage through the hardships of life. Verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Solomon reminds us in verse 15 that we're not going to read today that God's sovereignty arranges both adversity and prosperity. God's sovereignty is involved in this process of adversity and prosperity in our life. And the problem is our finite minds cannot comprehend it. We may not know why we are experiencing one or the other in that moment. We read the story of Job. We read the story of Job and we see it. And we see God said to say, you can have my servant Job. And I believe Job is going to come through this process. And so Job loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses all of his family with the exception of his wife. And even his wife wasn't a blessing to him in that season because she said, you've lost everything. Just curse God and die. And Job said, that's not my response. In this season, he was patient with God and allowed God to work 
work. And the end of the story is that God restored it all. And the problem for us is we know the end of the story because we've read the end of the story. And we're like, see, Job, that's why you should have been patient. Yet when we enter into a season of adversity, we're like, God, I want to know where you are working because God, the past is better than the present. God, I'm angry that I'm here and not back there. God, I want to complain about where you have brought me. So our finite minds cannot comprehend the change that God is bringing. We might find fault with it, but listen, we cannot change it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what God has made crooked? And then verse 14. Solomon says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. God has intertwined our lives with adversity and prosperity in such a way that we cannot discover anything about our future simply by looking at our circumstances. And so the conclusion for Solomon is that adversity may have benefits. Prosperity may have ill effects. But the effects of either depend on how we respond to them. Solomon says there are really only two choices. You can respond wisely or you can respond foolishly. So in light of this inability to change adversity and prosperity, this is Solomon's conclusion. It's better to submit to God's sovereignty. Enjoy the good times. Be happy. And remember in the bad times that adversity has unknowable purposes that are beyond our human finite understanding. And so if God has made things a certain way, why try to change it? The posture of impatience and anger and complaining is contrary to the submissive attitude that Solomon says we should have in light of God's sovereignty. That's easier preached than it is lived. Can I ask you this morning? Are you facing adversity right now? Have you been looking back in your pain and in your struggle and having a difficult time seeing the way forward? If that's where you are this morning, there are really a few opportunities before you. The first opportunity is that you can just get bitter. It's easy. I know that. I'm familiar with it. The second opportunity is that you can enjoy nothing. You can enjoy no one so that you don't get hurt. I'm probably more familiar with that one. And then the third opportunity is that you can enjoy what you have for as long as you can. And when it's gone, you can be grateful to God for what you had. 
there's something better for our hearts this morning in adversity. And now let me tell you why number three is a possibility for us. We need wisdom this morning. Let me stir the seed of affection and reflection in the place where moral decision-making happens. Let me stir your heart this morning. Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. It sounds like a man who's going through adversity. Fortunately for our sakes, he was no ordinary man. His name was Jesus. Verse 5 tells us why he went through the adversity. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, present and future, was on Jesus. And by his wounds, we are healed. God's not unfamiliar with adversity this morning. God left the prosperity of heaven to assume the adversity of humanity on our behalf. The Bible tells us that today he's interceding for us. He's praying for you in your adversity. And I want to do that for you today. I don't know what you're walking through. I've lived in Los Angeles just long enough to know that adversity and prosperity can exist in the same 24-hour period, sometimes literally an hour apart. So I want to pray for you this morning, whatever you're going through. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate together communion down front, and there's one in the back. If you're gluten-free, feel free to grab up top. If you're walking through adversity this morning, I want to, I'd like to pray for you. And you can stay seated. You can come down front. If you'd like and you'd rather be more private about it, the connect table, you can fill out a connect card and say, I need somebody to pray for me about this. And we'd be delighted to pray for you this week. In just a moment as we celebrate communion, can I just say one final word and, and then we're going to sing a few songs and we'll be done. In this moment that we're about to experience together is communion. The Lord's Supper is a moment where we look back. One of the few times in Scripture where we're commanded to look back at the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us so that he could bring us to peace with him. And so if you know Jesus this morning, if you've come to a relationship with God where he's saved you and he's changed you, this is a moment for you to look back in order to look forward. If you don't know Jesus this morning, can I say, I'm, I'm happy that you're here. We are so honored that you're here. We hope this is an environment where every story is welcome and you can hear about Jesus every week. But if you've never entered into a relationship with the Lord, I just want to ask you to refrain from these communion tables this morning. This is a moment of reflection and sort of a prayerful attitude, if you will. And I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for us as a church. I want to pray for us individually, if you'd allow us to. And then we're going to look back so that we can look forward in joy. Jesus, God, we remember this morning the body that was broken 
the blood that was shed for humanity. God, we remember that you left the prosperity of heaven to assume the adversity of humanity on our behalf. Jesus, I'm praying this morning. God, as you are interceding, Jesus, I join with you this morning to pray for brothers and sisters in this auditorium. God, marriages that are suffering, people who are struggling with addiction to drugs and alcohol. Jesus, I pray this morning who, for people who are experiencing difficult and adversity and hardship in their job. Jesus, I pray for people who feel isolated in this auditorium this morning, from people in our city, maybe even from people in their own church this morning. Jesus, I pray for people individually by the spirit of the living God, would you speak to us individually this morning? Remind us of the broken body, the shed blood, the prosperity of heaven, the adversity of humanity that you assume on our behalf. You were stricken, you were despised, but you did it for humanity. Jesus, may that stir our souls this morning. Jesus, may that stir our hearts, the seed of affection, the seed of reflection, the seed of moral decision making. God, by the Spirit of the living God. Stir our hearts, sober our minds. Remind us that in the midst of adversity, we should look forward, not behind us, because the best is yet to come. I pray for people in this room this morning, Jesus. You know every need, every name, every hair on our heads. Jesus, would you meet those needs this morning? And whatever we're wrestling through today, God, by the Spirit of the living God, make yourself real and evident and obvious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.